Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Patient from Hell podcast. It is my complete honor and honestly very excited for this episode because I get to welcome an oncologist, but also hopefully someone I call a friend to this episode. This is Dr. Chris Terry, who has been with Mantacares, supporting us, cheering us on for what, in over a year, year and a half now. Um, so with that very vague introduction, I'm going to ask Dr. Terry to talk about one, how he got into oncology and two, how he found us. So that, that is a fun story in and of itself. Yeah, awesome. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to um, be on this platform and thankful to be on the platform. Um, and like you said, I would definitely call us friends, by the way. And, and we're, we are like that, that type of friend who you don't talk for a little while and you're like, oh, I'm thinking about Samira. And then you get in touch and it's like instant reconnection and we're on the same wavelength and everything. So it's a pretty special kind of friendship. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's been, I'm so glad to be part of this um, because I've been a big fan of what you're doing from the beginning, like you said. Um, and so thank you for, again, for having me on. Um, in terms of like my story and how I got into oncology, I, I think as a young kid, I always wanted to help people or, um, you know, make a difference in the world. That was kind of instilled to me at a young age from my family, um, just by the example that they set, the kind of the values that we had. And uh, when I was kind of thinking of ways to do that, like being a doctor sounded like a pretty cool way to do it. Um, and you feel good when you help people. I know there's something that's, um, I guess, inherently selfish about that, but it's the truth at the same time. Like when you're helping others, you feel good about it. So it's it's reciprocated. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I kind of set on, on a path to become a doctor at a pretty young age, uh, despite the, the fact that it, no one in my family is in the medical field. Uh, so it's been kind of an interesting experience in terms of like being an undergrad and then having some of my peers be like, ah, I got to study for the MCATs. And I was like, what are the MCATs? And then it's, you know, what is, oh, there's four years of med school before you get to choose what you want to do. So all of that was totally new and foreign to me. And I just kind of have been going along with it throughout that time. Um, and so went to medical school. Um, I thought I would maybe do like orthopedic surgery when I first went into it because I love sports. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, I'm hoping. Um but ultimately didn't feel like that was the best fit for me. And I kept just kind of gravitating towards people that I really respected and liked. And I would kind of try and follow in their shoes and be like, hey, I want to do what they're doing at some point. I want to hang around them and take care of people the way that they are taking care of people. So um, I did a MedPeds fellow or a residency program, which is a combined program where you do internal medicine and pediatrics. And I love the way that they communicated with patients. That was probably the primary reason um, I went into MedPeds. Um, and then from there, I, uh, from an oncology standpoint, something that's interesting is I think where I'm from, I came from a very small town. As I mentioned, my, nobody in, fa in my family is medis in medicine. And I think as many of your listeners probably know, the medical language is like a totally different language. Like I felt like I was learning a new language, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and um, so something that somebody told me early on was there are two kinds of, of smart people in this world. There are 
smart people who make really simple things complicated to serve themselves. And then there are smart people who make really complicated things simple to serve others. And I love that. And um, I felt like that's that's what I wanted to do uh, from a medical perspective is dumb things down to my level that I would need it at. Um, and cancer oncology is such a complex world where people are really vulnerable, really kind of at their lowest point. And so I think it just brought everything together for me in terms of like, I can help people here. I can make a big difference. I can simplify what is just this crazy um, new experience for someone and make it more manageable. And so that's how I found my way into oncology eventually. Um, it was kind of a whirlwind. Can you talk about where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, central Pennsylvania. So about 40, 40 minutes from Penn State University. That's how I usually explain it. And then if somebody's from Pennsylvania, I'll say uh, Lock Haven University is the town that's closest to where I'm from. Um, the, the actual town is called Beach Creek. So that in itself tells you that it's pretty rural. Um, <laughs> um, but if you put like a tack in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania on a map, that's, that's where I'm from. Very wow. small town. Um, yeah. Wow. How many, how many doctors were in that town? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I did have a couple of, I had, I had two good friends growing up whose parents were physicians, family physicians, and I always had a ton of respect for them. And, you know, I actually ran into one of them relatively recently. And I, I shared that I think he was probably much more responsible for me going into medicine than I even realized. And I'm sure than he realized. Um, so yeah, it, there was like, it's a small community-based hospital. Um, very few, uh, or like there's few physicians there, but, um, those who do practice medicine there, you know them, the community knows them and they're important to the community and what they do for the community. So I do think that was probably important to me, for me to see at a young age and want to aspire to. So that actually leads us into one of the questions that we both were hoping to get into, right? Which is community oncology versus oncology in different settings. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little, little bit about just definitionally, what does community oncology mean? and then why you chose to end up in community oncology. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, and this is something that was, again, was foreign to me as I was going through this, but in general, there's kind of, there's, I would say there's two main, um, there's two main categories to break it down into. There's the academic big city names. So usually they're academic institutions or um, hospitals that are affiliated with academic centers. And they tend to be in bigger cities or um, more metropolitan areas. Um, although there are also community-based hospitals in, in the city as well, but they're usually not affiliated with an academic center. Um, and this landscape is shifting and changing consistently, meaning you, many people have probably noticed that academic centers are now, now have their names seemingly everywhere. Um, and I think there's a lot of benefit to that, um, but there's also some drawbacks. I'm currently at a community-based hospital where um, it is literally our, our town, our community. Um, we're not affiliated with any major academic centers. Um, we take care of kind of our local uh, population here. And um, that provides individuals an opportunity to get their care close to home. I think as medical professionals, it's easy for us to forget um, how important sometimes some of the logistical aspects of providing care are. 
Um, and so from where I was from, if you wanted to get um, certain, the thought was if you wanted to get a certain level of cancer care or treatment, you would have to travel a, a pretty far distance and you'd have to go to the cities. Um, and, and, and what I came to learn or recognize very quickly is things like driving an hour or even further to a, to a facility, finding parking, paying for parking, finding out where you're going to stay, where are you going to go eat afterwards? Like all of those things add additional stress and um, challenges to the care that you're receiving, which is already stressful, right? So um, the I always thought I would, I would practice at an academic center when I was done training. I think that's kind of ingrained into you as you go through training, to be honest. I think uh, you're just so used to it. You're used to learning from other people um, that are, are practicing in that setting. You have a lot of additional resources, quite frankly. Um, and so you get used to that and then you don't really think about practicing in a community-based setting. I, when I was looking for a job for a number of different reasons, um, was kind of all over the map. And I was initially planning on doing academic medicine and then an opportunity came up for me to practice at a small community-based hospital and it kind of, <laughs> no pun intended, but hit home for me. Um, and it was like a good, it just felt like a good fit. Um, in addition, I had like amazing mentors that I had actually worked with yeah. during my training here already. And so it almost set that example of like, you can get really good quality care close to home. Um, you know, there are differences. We don't do clinical trials and things like that, but mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to be able to get their care. Um, even at a or at a local community hospital, if it's possible, and there's now lots more a lot more collaboration between community-based hospitals and academic centers. Even though we're not affiliated with one, I feel so supported by the doctors at Boston, at Rhode Island, you know, and I can call them and we can work together. And I think that's um, also something that's probably changed in some of the the way that oncologists work together. I love that example. And just if you're okay with it, sharing a bit of like my my journey, because I started out with an academic medical center. I did most of my active treatment there. And then actually ended up finding the need to switch to another oncologist who happened to be at a community center. And I do find myself driving an hour. My community hospital is not close to me. It is an hour away. <laughs> And the logistics, they, they definitely add up, even as a survivor. I am not an active treatment, but my iron levels, levels tank, so I've, I've had to go in for iron infusions. So going mm -hmm. back to the infusion center at a community hospital, it's just been such a different experience for me in a very good way. This is actually, I, I've been very pleasantly surprised and happy and feel warm and fuzzy because it's smaller and I've gotten to know everyone really quickly. Whereas the, at the academic medical center, I went in every other week for two years and still didn't know everyone. And you're like two infusion cycles in and I'm like, yup, know all the nurses, yeah, know all the docs, know all the reception staff. Like I, I know everyone. And it's, it's actually very, uh, I find it to be enriching in a very different way. So for what it's yeah. worth, it's definitely worth the hour drive for me and I can do it right now. So, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm so glad you shared that. Cause I think you touched on a couple of important things. There are 
definitely differences between a big academic center and a local community hospital and both good and bad. Um, I mean, like you said, I, I do think there is something unique about having that as much as you, tr as much as you can try at a, at a larger center, um, the personal touch can, when you're taking care of so many people the way that they do, it's just, it's not as intimate, I guess, even though I'm sure the, that a lot of the providers are able to form great relationships, it's just a different setting. Um, so that's, that's certainly one, one component of it. Um, and then at the same time, there are definitely services that we can't offer here that I know patients will get better care or need to go to a, to a academic center for. And so I'm more than happy or like, I, I refer them, I tell them to do, so to go elsewhere to get certain types of care. And, um, so I do think that there's a, there's a place for us to continue to collaborate. Um, like you said, survivorship, I've inherited several patients who, you know, have gone through their treatment at an academic center, but they live in our town and they're like, I, I just, I need my occasional scan. I need to see an oncologist who's going to be able to listen to me or, or go over some things. Um, and we make it work and I'm still in communication with the doctor up at the academic center. So, um, I'm glad that you found somewhere closer to home that's working for you that way. Um. <laughs> I don't and know if it's close to home, but <laughs> well, yeah, it's still an hour. That's still, yeah, quite the track. It's quite the track. I just, uh, yeah, I, I can't give you a good reason for me not switching care. I just, I think I just like it. It feels, I think, I think there's something about the feeling of it. I, and it's not rational. Uh, it just as a, it's a feeling. It's like, huh, okay, this feels. Your Warm feelings matter, Sierra. As your friend, your feelings matter. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You kind of forget that sometimes, right? On the oncology side. It's actually something that uh, I don't know if you see with your patients. It's so easy to put the emotional side aside and deal with the kind of practical or the physical and forget the emotional side of it. But I mean, 100%. And I think that comes back to even, even just the simple things like I can't tell you how many patients talk to me about parking. Like sometimes when I see patients and they, they, I, I say, you know, you know, if you want a clinical trial, I'd recommend that you maybe go, um, go North or go South and go to some of these bigger institutions. And they say, but doc, how am I going to find parking there? And I'm just like, Hey, you know what? Sometimes it's the little, little things. Um, but, uh, yeah. so, but it's true. It's true. Like we, we get so um, we get tunnel vision on, okay, this is the chemotherapy regimen that this patient needs. And, you know, in, in all fairness, that's, that's our job. That's what we studied. That's what we went to school for, but it's so much bigger than that. So much bigger than that. Um, and so whether that means the community setting, whether that means us touching base on, you know, mental health, physical health, whatever it may be, um, we, it, it's important for everyone to take a step back at times and kind of see the bigger picture. Um, I want us to transition to a different topic, but before I do that, uh, I need to share a parking parking story because yes. I, I just need to. This is this needs to one, so. It's totally true. It. So at the academic medical center, the individual I saw the most was the person who uh, took care of the parking. I am not even joking. By the end of treatment, he and I were best buddies. Yeah. Perfect. Best buddies. He, every time he would show up, he'd like give me a high five. He'd like, 
I shouldn't say this publicly, but I, I just he would give me free parking. Oh, I was He's gonna not... say you you had to have gotten a couple of free parking sessions, or at least like a nice spot, right? Definitely all the time. And this, <laughs> I wasn't even trying. It was just I I was getting treated during COVID, so my family wouldn't come with me. So the fact that he would take the two minutes to have a conversation with me while I would like enter and leave mattered. Like, I cannot tell you how much it mattered. It mattered to me so much. And I think because we reciprocated it, I got to know his family, why he became a parking attendant, how he ended up in the US. It was just, it was one of the most special relationships where when it ended, I remember bawling because I wouldn't see him as often. Isn't that crazy? Like, the parking situation, you know? Um, But it, it just, again, it just really makes that idea that it's more than the treatment it's it's the whole the whole experience that um you never know what's going to stick with you or land with you and carry forward with you um so that's so cool i i hope that that parking attendant knows how much of an impact they made on your life you know i bet you i'm not sure if they do or not but it's it's pretty cool no they definitely do because i ended up uh he had told me he had a blank space on his wall, so I ended up making a painting for him. So he definitely knows. Oh, that's uh, awesome! How much, how much he meant to me and my treatment. So um, very cool. It's been, it's been a minute. Um, on that, on that kind of arbitrary random note, um, I'd actually love for us to sort of go into your um, passion. So oncology, of course, but you've also had this oncology. Uh, let's call it oncology plus passion. And I see it on the on the wall behind you. So I'd love for you to like jump into why that matters, why you ended up doing that project as well, in addition to all the work you do in the sort of like clinical space. Yeah, uh, I think it's funny that you said that because when we started talking about the parking attendant, I was like, this fits with what I'm passionate about. Which um, what Samir is alluding to is I have a sign behind me that says "Athletes Fighting Cancer" and. Um, Athletes Fighting Cancer is a is an organization that I've helped grow um, with the influence from the influence of patients that I've met, um, and it's all about using kind of the power of sport um, in the fight against cancer. And uh, it really comes from my it developed from my passion with sports at a really young age. Uh, I talked a lot about where I grew up already, but I have three brothers and a sister and we all played sports and we're very competitive growing up and we just loved it. And, uh, not only did we beat each other up a lot and, you know, probably hurt, hurt each other too much for my mom's liking. But, um, we, I think through those experiences, we developed a lot of, um, kind of intangible tools. Um, you know, you develop some, some resiliency, some mental toughness, Obviously, there's physical benefits to being physically active, um, but the things that I carry most with me currently are, you know, the friendships and the relationships that I had and the team that I was always part of, and I think that's so invaluable. Um, and so when I when you talk about the parking attendant, I just think he's such a important part of your care team, you know, and and we don't uh, keep that in perspective enough, I think, yeah. uh, and so. The way that Athletes Fighting Cancer developed was I was taking care of a young patient who was also an athlete. He had gone to uh, college and was diagnosed during his preseason physical 
um, with cancer and I was meeting him for the first time and we had this kind of common bond of a love and passion for sports. It was something that he had kind of built his identity around really. It was a huge part of his life. And all of a sudden he's questioning, will he ever be able to do that again? He doesn't really feel as part of the team like he used to, you know, he's a little more isolated. Um, and he asked me like kind of what he could expect moving forward in terms of, um, will he be able to play again? Um, when will he get back to doing it? Will he do it at the level that he was at? And I didn't have any answers for him as a medical professional. So we started Googling and as soon as you Google athletes with cancer, well, now you may find athletes fighting cancer. So that wasn't an intentional plug, but I just did it. Um, but if you do Google athletes with cancer, it's pretty remarkable how many like well or famous, well-known athletes have had cancer at some point and then return to their level of competitiveness, or at least use the skills and the experiences they had from their athletic experience in their cancer journey. And they talk about how it helped them. Yeah. And so we kind of felt like, man, there's something to this. Um, can we connect people who love to be physically active, who do find sport and teamwork and the coaching aspect? Can we incorporate that into the into their cancer journey, into the cancer experience? Um, and can that help them? And uh, so Athletes Fighting Cancer really has started as, as a, like I said, a patient-centered movement where I'm just trying to connect other athletes across the country who um, receive this difficult diagnosis and are looking to connect with other people. That's awesome. I, I've always loved what you do, and I don't know if I identify as an athlete. Definitely not at the level you take care of athletes on. But I think the spirit of it definitely resonates. Because I do yeah. think that there's a lot there, right? So I'd love for you to talk about some of these things. So you mentioned coaching, you mentioned um, in Taekwondo, I, I do martial arts. And um, there's a there's a, a Korean word called Junshi, which means fighting spirit, which I think absolutely, I mean, for all of the battle language and oncology, it definitely translates. But I'd love for you to talk about some of these sort of insights and learnings that you've seen help people go from being an athlete without cancer to an athlete fighting cancer? Yes, definitely. Um, so I want to just touch base on like the, the language that you brought up because it's so important. It comes up all the time. And I just, I'm sure I know that it's been talked about on your show before, but I also just like want to acknowledge um, I was very uncomfortable with the idea of naming this group athletes fighting cancer, but it was chosen by the people who had kind of helped found it. Um, and I just, I think that the idea of fighting, battle, everything's, um, you know, language is different for everybody. But I think what we felt as we were developing this is that people can fight in different ways. Um, people can be athletes in different ways. Uh, so uh, we always, like the idea of athletes fighting cancer was initially developed to really support people who, like you said, were kind of high competitive athletes, uh, very small niche an individual group of people, but there's certainly a, a broader um, concept to it and a trickle down effect that we hoped would happen. And we hoped would inspire other people to find their inner athlete is the way that we put it. And um, that can be in so many ways. It can be yoga. It can be going for a walk. It's really just activating your mind and body is what we say. You need to activate your mind and body the best that you can. And um, 
you'll see subtle improvements from there. Um, you'll see that um, your mental health is better. There's lots of studies that have shown that people who are physically active um, improve their mental health, their quality of life, and improve sleep, it improves bone strength. And now there's more and more research saying that um, it plays a role in, in cancer prevention, treatment, survivorship. So that world of exercise oncology is really exploding. Um, but what we do specifically with athletes fighting cancer is again, connect that one-to-one kind of give individuals a sense of being, belonging to a new team, a very unique team. Um, and so surrounding them with teammates, um, we do are able to connect people with um, coaches so that they can help guide them through physical activity and exercises. There are online programs that provide a lot of the um, exercise instruction as well. Um, we work with a lot of these researchers in exercise oncology um, to help clarify and bring tools to both patients, but also healthcare providers um, about how to guide individuals um, in a safe way to incorporate physical activity. Um, and so those are, those are some of the key ways that we, we support and help people. Um, and yeah, that's, um, can I, uh, can I actually put your clinical hat on? And yeah, do it. I'm going to pretend as I'm a specific type of patient. Okay. And I'd love for you to, uh, give me any guidance when it comes to exercise, because I think it's one of the areas of oncology where uh, it's hard to get the right advice. And I put that in air quotes because there's a lot of information out there, but it's not easy to figure out what is applicable. So yeah. uh, if you're open to it, and yes, this podcast is not medical advice. What is being shared is not. Please talk to your doctor, and we have our caveats at the end of the show, but uh, this is entirely hypothetical. So it's all good. I'm, I feel very com comfortable doing this. I think it's something that, unfortunately, like most oncologists don't feel comfortable enough doing, um, and understandably so. We don't get like a lot of training in it or anything. So um, I understand why some uh, oncologists would have some reservations about giving advice like this. Um, but in general, for anybody that I meet, um, I try to get a sense as to what they enjoy doing. So you were mentioning that you do some, you do martial arts and I would say, that's awesome. Keep doing martial. Let's say you're going through treatment. I would say, that's awesome. I want you to keep doing martial arts as much as you can throughout treatment. I'm going to be keeping an eye on your blood work. I'm going to be keeping an eye on some of these other things that may limit um, your ability to participate in those things. And if I'm concerned, if I see that, you know, your red blood cells are too low or your platelets are too low or anything that I feel may make it unsafe for you to participate, I'll let you know. Um, I think it's also important to set expectations. So you may not be able to perform at the level that you are used to, and that's okay. You may need to take more of a break than you're used to, and that's okay also. You need to listen to your body and um, while I'm going to encourage you to push yourself a little bit, I don't want you to push it too much. So, um, I also encourage, um, people to kind of listen to their body, find that balance and understand that, uh, you can't always push your limits. If there's, there's a time and place to do it, a safe way to do it. Um, but in general, if somebody's pretty active, I want them to keep doing that. If somebody's not active at all, then I, I recommend setting really small goals up front. Um, so let's say you're going to get up and walk around the house five times today. 
That's it, just five times. Make sure you get up and you do a loop around your house five times. Um, and then after you get done doing that five times, I want you to feel really good about yourself for completing that task. Um, yeah. And then maybe the next day you're gonna grab um, two cans of soup out of the the uh, counter or out of the cabinet and you're gonna walk around and you're gonna do some bicep curls while you walk around. So incremental changes with just things that are around your house. Setting small tasks, I think, small achievable goals to start is really important. Um, and you, then you can build from there. You start to gain some confidence. You start to gain some strength. Um, and, and it's kind of this ongoing um, building the success and feeling good about yourself, that self-esteem. Uh, the last thing that I would say is if you can try and connect with other people who are also trying to be physically active. So, so important. So I keep mentioning team. Um, and while your healthcare team is important, your peers and your um, finding other people who have similar goals is also important. So uh, there's nothing like accountability when it comes to um, exercising and stuff like that. Or, you know, if somebody's training for a 5K, it's always helpful to have that other person who's training with you because you don't want to let them down. So um, I think that's a helpful thing to incorporate also. Uh, one of the things I had set up, but then uh, COVID happened, was uh, one of my, I used to work as a consultant many, many years ago. And when I got diagnosed, I called up one of my mentors who has uh, his own kind of cancer story. And I called him and I was like, hey, do you have any piece of advice for me? And he goes, yeah, think of this as a project and you're the project manager and you need to assign your team. And just remember that one person in your team has to be uh, assigned to be accountable for you for exercise. Hmm. So hmm. I had set up my like family and friends all showed up and I was like, okay, you are my communications director. You are my exercise director. So I had uh, a buddy of mine who was my exercise director and we got two sessions in before COVID lockdown happened. And then well, COVID lockdown happened. So that went out the door, but um, the intent had been there. Yeah, yeah, that and that, that's the first part is that, is that intent getting getting things started. Um, that's and that's awesome. And I've heard, like I said, I've heard on your podcast before people sharing their experience and have people who were not physically active and then kind of found that as a as something that they could do. There's so much that you can't control throughout cancer, and be and and I want to acknowledge that sometimes if you are feeling really tired and exhausted from your treatments. Maybe you, you can't be as active as you would like. Um, but I think that if we all were honest with ourselves, we could probably do something a little bit better, be a little bit more active in some kind of way, in some kind of capacity. Um, I, I, I've talked about the mental wellness and resiliency part of it as well. That is such an important part of being an athlete. Um, and so, you know, meditation, mindfulness, to me, that's athleticism um, because it's, it's again, activating your mind, it's training your mind and your body. There's a, inevitably a connection there. So um, you don't have to be moving or moving around or running five miles. If you can do some deep breathing exercises and stuff, that, that to me is a huge step um, and really important for, um, for you throughout your journey. Um, I really appreciate sharing all of that. I'm going to switch tactics a little bit. Um, yeah. One of the things you and I have discussed in the past was, if I remember this right, 
when a patient shows up to your practice, never met this patient before, newly diagnosed, one of the things you do up front is a cancer 101 mini lecture. I don't think you said that it was a lecture, but you sort of walk through who is part of your care team, what does it mean, uh, what are the disciplines at play. You kind of go almost through like a definitional, this is just the lay of the landscape. Am I remembering this right? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and and it's part of why I love what you do so much and what Vanta Cares does, like is with that, that um, with the planner, it helps connect the provider and the patient if the provider is willing to engage in that process. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. Like I think upfront, it's so important to kind of set, to make sure you're on the same page at the beginning. Um, so whenever I meet a new patient, I want to make sure that they understand what their diagnosis is. So I'll actually say like, I'll, so I have a whiteboard in all of my rooms and I'll write, draw up and I'll say, this is your diagnosis. And so for example, renal cell carcinoma. Okay. I can say that and move on, but if a patient doesn't really understand that it's kidney cancer, it's not super helpful. So I'll always say the diagnosis in like what, how I refer to it, but then also kind of basic terms. Um, so start that way. And then the next thing I do is to talk about staging. And I always say, everybody's going to ask you about what stage are you? What stage are you? And it's difficult if you're the one with cancer and you don't really understand what stage you are or how they got that staging. So I say staging in general, and obviously it's different for all, for the different types of cancers, but in general, I'll go through this like TNM and I'll write it up on the board. So T represents the tumor size. N represents nodal invasion. So are there lymph nodes around the tumor that have been invaded? M stands for metastasis. So are there, is there evidence of cancer that has traveled beyond to distant organs? That's what metastatic disease is. And based on those three criteria, typically that's how oncologists develop the stage or identify the stage. So I'll go through that for with each patient. And then I'll say, based on what the staging is, that usually dictates what your treatment should be. And treatment can be very complicated. Um, there, and I break it down into three teams, surgery, radiation, and medical oncology. Hmm. And I, it's gotta be very clear. These are three different healthcare teams. So you're gonna be seeing potentially a surgeon if they can resect your tumor or they can do something surgically to help you. Um, so for example, for, um, for prostate cancer, that may be a urologist, which again, not necessarily, doesn't necessarily always say, oh, this is my surgeon, but urologist is kind of fits in that surgery bucket. Then radiation, you may hear people say radonc, or are you getting radiation? That's another specialist. So that's another care team. And then medical oncology, which is what I am, we are the ones who give chemotherapy. We can give immunotherapy, um, which uses your immune system. We can give targeted therapy, which focuses on certain mutations that we may find in your tumors. So identifying those three different teams, and then even within those teams, that's I'm the medical oncologist, so I start to talk about the different treatments that you can have. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's just important to kind of set that general landscape up for the individual um, one, because again, they'll get asked questions about it from their friends and family, oh, yeah. which is another thing that I touch on. Um, I say, you'll always hear plenty of opinions and thoughts from your friends and family. And I think it's wonderful because it means they care about you. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in it yeah. at the same time. Everybody's experience is totally different. 
everybody's cancer is unique. So try to keep that in perspective. Um, and please talk to me about things that you're interested in or want to pursue. Um, so that, that's the general initial conversation that I'll have with a patient. And then obviously we'll dive into questions and things like that. I love that. I'm so, so glad we got you on video walking through that. I cannot tell you how happy I am. We got you on video doing that. I could have brought in a whiteboard. That's a I know. I was thinking uh, that too. Next time. Next time we'll have a digital whiteboard. All right. Part two. Yeah, part two. Uh, no, I'm so glad you did that because it's been one of the pieces that I think, I'm pretty sure it was our conversation. I think you, you pointed it out to me one of the times we spoke and I was like, you know what? That's, you're, you're so right, but we don't do a cancer 101 ever. It happens, yeah. it happens in a blip and it usually happens in an appointment where at least for me, I was like, wait a minute, what do I have again? What are you talking about? Hold on, what? Right, yeah. it's happening in, the, in that like deer and headlights moment um, of the cancer experience. So I'm actually really, really happy we recorded this because I think that just that little snippet, I think is gonna be of such immense value to have someone understand the kind of framework and logic at play. So thank you for doing I'm that. So glad, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad that you think it's helpful. Um, but I'm also glad that you mentioned like you, I also totally understand that although I'm trying to break it down simply, that most people who leave the office are probably what the heck just happened. Even though I tried to, you know, even though we took our time and went through that, yeah. it's, I can't imagine what people are going through in that moment and what's racing through their mind. This is something that I'm doing multiple times a day. So it doesn't, it, it's different for me than it is for that individual who's going through it. And so I'll actually write it up on the whiteboard and then I'll tell them to take a picture with their phone as well. Um, but I'll, I'll write it out and we can put it on the, on the um, show notes and stuff, a link to it on the show notes. That'd be awesome. Thank you. That'd be amazing. Uh, with that, I'm going to ask you a wrap up question. Uh, I'm going to ask you, cause you're relatively uh, early in your oncology career, right? You hopefully have many decades ahead of you of helping thousands and thousands of patients. So if you look out 10, 20 years, what do you hope the field of oncology looks like? Oh, that's an awesome question. An awesome question. I thought you were going to ask something like about me planning something. And I've learned that I just don't plan things anymore because I never get it right. I, I I heard that planning is good. Plans are silly. Like it's helpful to plan. plan it's helpful to do the act of planning, but setting plans and sticking to them are silly. Um, so thank you for not asking me that because I'm not good at that. But I would love for, I think you and I are on the same page. In, on this where it's more it's more of a um, dynamic relationship between patients and providers and I will be the first to admit that providers could certainly do a better job of engaging patients and allowing patients to um, be part of the care um, but I, I do think that there's responsibility on the patient's end as well to advocate for themselves and I hope that the culture of oncology has been shifting a little bit more where patients feel comfortable doing that, um, where they feel comfortable and confident in doing that and they don't feel like, uh, and oncologists don't feel threatened by it. Um, it's a challenge because unfortunately time is, is limited in appointments. I hate it, but it's the reality. And, um, you know, to have those really meaningful conversations, I think, and really 
have a great relationship like that requires time. So if I could choose the way that the oncology field would look like in the future, first, I would hope that we have a cure for everything. Um, right. Secondly, I would hope for um, that relationship to be better and more um, collaborative um, with no time, not as many kind time constraints, at least, um, and a more holistic approach. So uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, realistic to expect an oncologist to cover everything from a holistic standpoint. I think they need to be in tune with it and aware of it. But I think you need I think everybody should have a care team where we're addressing all the different needs and and it shouldn't even be a question. You shouldn't have to search for those resources or those team members. They should be provided to you once that diagnosis is is made. Um, so I think that's probably my biggest answer is everybody who gets a diagnosis has a team who's able to help the individual on a very holistic, um, in a holistic way, and that the individual going through it feels empowered, feels safe, um, and ultimately feels like they're getting the best care possible. Thank you for sharing that. We are definitely on the same page. <laughs> that we, yep, you were totally right. Yes, of course we're on the same page. I love the vision of the future and I am certain we're going to have a part two at some point. So uh, thank you for joining us in this episode. Thank you for sharing your insights and the mission. And I hope that from this episode, everyone gets to take a little piece of the athlete and imbibe it into their lives. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for everything you're doing. It's amazing. Thank you, guys. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.